Welcome to the PGM podcast. With this podcast, we're looking to normalize the conversation around flooding, what happens behind the scenes, lifting the curtains and the mystery that could sometimes come into play when you're either involved with flooding or trying to protect your home or business. We're talking to some experts within the industry and relaying some of the experiences we've heard from some communities around the region. Hopefully, after our series, you'll have a bit more information to help yourself and others in an emergency where flooding is involved. We have a diverse network of partners and friends, some of whom could not join us in person. This is a bonus episode where we catch up with some of them virtually. Hello uh, and welcome to this uh, this extra piece of uh, the PGM podcast. Uh, I'm Carl and this is Meshi. Hi. So today um, what we're going to be talking about in a bit more detail is, uh, is STEM and um, how we can look at getting more people involved in flood and water management um, as a career and looking towards the future. So very excited to have a guest here um, as part of the Chartered Institute of Water and Environmental Management, which obviously I'm a member of, but uh, Nikki Roach, welcome. Thank you very much, Carl Meshi. It's lovely to see you both. So Nikki, tell us a bit more about your background. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, well, as Carl said, I'm a Chartered Water and Environment Manager and I'm a Fellow of SIWIM. And I'm a chartered environmentalist. So I spent 20 plus years working in and around the kind of water and environment sector. But for me, that's been primarily in the water sector. So both working for water companies and working with organisations that support water companies um, and doing a range of things, both on the clean and the wastewater side, you know, operations, capital delivery, uh, biosolids sludge, uh, in, other, in other words, which I've loved. Um, and currently... I'm doing some work, I'm an independent consultant, doing some work with one of the water companies, helping them think about blue and green solutions. So thinking about, if you like, the kind of drainage networks of the future and how we can slow the flow down and how we can encourage solutions that have loads more benefits than just the obvious reducing pollution, reducing storm overflow discharges, but also, you know, health and social benefits and amenity value. So, um, yeah, that's me. In a nutshell, I'm an ardent environmentalist try and tread as lightly as I can far from perfect but um love this kind of stuff and I had the absolute privilege of being the president of the Chartered Institution of Water and Environmental Management three years ago something like that so um that was a total joy and opened my eyes to all sorts of things really across the sector so yeah that's me brilliant well we've got lots of questions for you then um (laughs) I think we've been talking a lot about um a climate change future a climate change present actually as well as a future and Mm. and the skills gap being one of the biggest challenges in industry um so that's one of the reasons we're talking about stem today or steam including the art so to kind of expand on that recognize Mm. there's a diversity of skills that all contribute towards the uh, will contribute towards the industry so talk us more about some of the challenges in that space I think one of them is about visibility, to be honest, Meshi. I think you've hit on something really interesting there. So we we know there's a kind of, you know, there's a STEM gap. We've we've been addressing that, I think, as a as beyond the sector, but you know, more widely for quite a long time. Particularly there's a gender imbalance sometimes. And so there's lots of work going into that. I think where there's another gap that's maybe less talked about is exactly what you've just talked about around the types of skills that we need. So it's not just science, technology, engineering maths I'm a geographer I'm a very proud geographer and I'm and I'm a generalist so I've got some specialisms but the thing that I think I bring is the ability to think at systems level and to think you know across some of those silos definitely not having the depth 
but being able to sometimes identify opportunities that maybe would have been missed by people who are working in those quite understandable sort of silos that, that need that technical specialism. And I think for me, there is a gap in how we make the sector visible to people who think it's just for engineers yeah. or just for scientists or people who like those subjects at school. Because actually what we really need, both internally and I think also externally, are people that can communicate really effectively, that can translate the challenges that we're tackling and then be able to communicate those to an external audience that can use digital technologies, you know, prescriptive analytics, AI, and work out how to bring those into the sector and harness them in a really ethical and responsible way. There are so many opportunities to tackle the biggest threat that we face to our planet, you know, climate and ecological emergencies. That's happening in the water and environment space. And I think there's a real, you know, there's a real campaigning interest. For me, the real challenge is how do we help those people who are maybe fired up by that to turn around and say, well, there are jobs for you here. Yeah. And, and they might not look like the jobs that you expect, but they definitely exist. And if we haven't, as a sector, worked out how to articulate them, we need to do a better job of being able to say, actually, what, what do we really need here and, and be able to articulate that better, I think. Yeah, I think as well, you know, what, what you've mentioned there, particularly in your, in your introduction, a lot of it's green-blue infrastructure or blue-green infrastructure. And, mm. you know, the, if you think of the generation before us, it was all grey piped engineering, you know, concrete intensive engineering. And I, every every year I do something called Youth Climate Change, Youth Climate Change Summit um, locally. And we speak to all of the youngsters, sort of 14 to 18 year olds in the area and they make climate pledges, but we're there to talk about our careers and what we do. And, you know, every year I, I talk about civil engineering and the don't see civil engineering as a green career. But you think of, you know, as I said, these these kind of blue green cities or whatever you want to call it. We need people like ecologists. We need people like urban designers. We need people like landscape architects to be part of that flood management process. So, you know, how how do you how do we rebrand it is is in essence the question, you know? I mean, if, if that is the question, I don't have all the answers, yeah. but I think there's something about starting with why, isn't there? Mm. So, and I would push, I'd probably push even further, Carl, to say, yes, we need ecologists. We also need social scientists. We need behavioral yeah. scientists. We need, um, you know, n none of what we do exists in a vacuum either, does yeah. it? So somebody, um, somebody very wise uh, who I had on, on my podcast, Planet Possible, a while ago, uh, said to me, you know, you, if, you, if you live in an area that's economically deprived, and affected by flooding, then you're not going to be thinking about flood barriers for your home if you're thinking about the use of food banks. I mean, it's stark, but it's, I mean, it's real, mm. isn't it, actually? Mm. Often there is a correlation between those most impacted by things like flooding and those that are most socially and, and economically deprived. And actually, and also access to green space is often more limited. And all those things have this kind of combining effect. So um, we're not going to tackle the root of that all the roots out of that by just hard engineering it has a place of course it does but we've also got to be able to listen and understand and, and those are quite understandably often different skill sets yeah. to the ones that we've always had as a sector so um i think to come back to your question about how do we do that i mean i, I haven't cracked it i think this is a great this is a great avenue podcast like this trying to reach audiences through really accessible content that they might not ordinarily hear about the sector talking to kids perfect i mean that's that's the way to show you know and, and light up a route um but also starting with why so actually 
the sector that we all work in is a pretty values-driven sector. I mean, it's, it's yeah. in the press quite a lot at the moment. There is, you know, it's a quite challenging place to work. But um, generally, you can work in the sector if you're bothered about the environment, if you care, if you're motivated to make a difference. So I think finding people that align to those values and then working out where we can help them fit. So starting with that why might be a, a reasonable way to move forward rather than starting with the what or the how. Yeah. yeah, we've got used to all sitting in our own space. Yeah, so we have all these brilliant mm. organizations and they do good work, but it's Cywem or IC or Institute of Water. But we start with our brand and then we start with mm. the title. And it's, I'm a civil engineer, I'm proud of mm. that. But we're coming to a space where things are changing. And you're right, if we start with the why, there's a whole generation that's more intentional about let's do something to, to fight the challenges. They don't care what the title is, they mm. just want to do it. So if we change that perspective or that point of view, if we if we go around saying, look, this is what we, this is the challenge, and we're looking for, you know, the next the next champions, the next thief, you know, what I mean, it changes it from being mm. a, a title or a label to actually um, a purpose. And I think mm. having that purpose could actually bring more value to us than just talking in traditional ter- terms, because we still mm-hmm. talk about. Yes, we talk about nature-based solutions and green-blue infrastructure, um, and yeah, we're transitioning into a different way of thinking. But more often than not, we start with <laughs> the old way of thinking and then bolt everything on it. And if we completely mm. transform how we approach the conversation and yeah. start with the challenge and go, this is the challenge, let's put the rules to one side, that's the challenge, what can we do with it? Mm. Um, we might get a whole new audience a whole new group of supporters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So throughout my time in in my career, I've, I've mentored apprentices for probably the last 10 or 15 years. Um, and uh, they've all came through the Civil Engineering Apprenticeship Programme. And the mm. curriculum of that hasn't changed in 15 years. Um, but also right. as well, for a bit of context here, I originally came from transport engineering background. So I did a master in transport engineering at Newcastle University. Um, so I'm still connected with a lot of people there. And I've noticed that uh, the department for transport have started doing a specific apprenticeship for transport. And it's how could we look at doing an apprenticeship that is more aligned to things like sustainable drainage as opposed to hard engineering? How would that differ? What would that look like? And would that be a way to get people in? Well, I mean, I, so I'm not a member of the ICE. Uh, they wouldn't have me because, you know, I'm not an engineer. But I'm aware that the ICE have recently created a chartered infrastructure, infrastructure engineer. Yes, right? Yeah, engineer. I think is a brilliant step on that route. And for me, you know, so through Cyrem, you can become a chartered engineer. But I love that the ICE have done that. And actually, their current president, Anusha Shah, um, who I would consider a you know friend and colleague of mine and and um who who I know and she knows Cyrem and for me there is absolutely a role. There's a role for things like professional institutions for lots of reasons, including you want to really champion those specialisms. You know, mm-hmm. what I don't want to do here is make it sound like um specialisms don't matter, because it's far from the truth. But actually it's it's that plus, isn't it? So actually, how do you exactly like you said, find routes for things like um, blue green is a great is a great kind of test bed for that really so what kind of skills do we need for that not just what kind of skills but where does the capacity come for those roles as well because actually the types of people that we need to deliver some of those solutions where are they coming from are they the same skill sets that the people that are currently delivering those kind of hard engineered solutions have got or are we actually needing people that are able to deal with 
slightly less certainty, for example. You know, so the kind of solutions that you might put in in a blue-green environment might need to be um, more fluid, more flexible, even in a delivery space, which is very different to the kind of classic capital schemes that probably the three of us are very familiar with, where, you know, you draw it up and it comes to site and it gets built exactly like it looks like on the drawing. And and, and that's the success measure, really. To your, I love blue-green, I could talk about it forever. But going back to your kind of original point, I think there is something to be said around um, creating clear routes for people that demonstrate what we you know how they can get into those kind of careers and what those careers look like and we might need some different things there's also something you made the point Carl, about about apprentices so actually finding those routes from wherever people enter the sector yeah. so that might be somebody who is a, an early career professional coming in straight after school straight after university um whatever that might look like but also people who want to move into the sector who are early in their sector early in their career in our sector but might have worked in another sector for 10 or 15 years and have an epiphany and think, actually, this, this is where I want to be. Yeah, yeah. How do we help those people who might have worked in something entirely different, but wildly, you know, translatable, find their place in the sector as well? And, and how do we kind of pull them in and drag their skills in? So I think there's a role for professional institutions in both kind of, you know, I guess it's like the emergency exit lights on, a, on an airplane, you know, light that way really clearly to say that this is the path or these are the paths, and and there's a real value, and this for me is the point of SIREM and the ICE and other professional institutions and Institute of Water in saying professional competence in whatever space you go into is really valuable. So be whatever you want to be, and we're here to help support and underpin and demonstrate externally that you've reached a level of attainment and competence that means you can go on and do that and then go on and mentor others. So um, specialisms are important, but recognising where we connect and, and, and mutually supporting, I think, is really, is really important. I do think, though, just building on that, when I was doing my degree a very long time ago, I remember we had a project management module. And what do I want a project management module for? And the, the, the feedback was, as a civil engineer, when you're in industry, that's the space you're working with. So you need the skills. You're not yeah. a project manager. We recognize that. But you need the skills to be able to, to do your work as a competent civil engineer. And I think the same conversation could be had for some of the more, um, the kind of skills now that we need in the current environment when we're looking at what civil engineering looks like um but that said i think there are a number of intervention points um just like what you said there nikki i see cywem they have a lot of training and learning material and support that they do provide i know ic has gone through a very extensive review of its cpd library and the idea is mm-hmm. to kind of support its members to upskill to upskill in, in spaces like sustainability to upskill mm-hmm. in places like climate change um the apprenticeship levy also provides another route. Um, I've always said that had I had the apprenticeship levy when I went to university, I would not have gone into a full-time degree um, mm-hmm. at a very, very huge cost. I would have yeah, chosen yeah, yeah. And, and, differently. Yeah, and I think that's an important point as well, that, that not everyone who wants to be involved in a climate change career can go to university as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and an apprenticeship route would give that opportunity to, to everyone. Absolutely. It makes it makes an industry where we desperately need new skills much more affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a mm-hmm. whole there's a whole piece there about how we invest, how we promote that space as well. Mm-hmm. I've worked I, I used to work in Teesside some some years ago and I met somebody who was one of the biggest um community um champions, um Shadi 
a big, a big, big um, mentor of mine. And she worked with some of, some of these, in some of these vulnerable communities, Nikki. And, and one of the things there was obviously these families want to see their, their kids get higher education, but then they're like, we can't afford it. And then you said, why don't you do an apprenticeship? Mm. Levy the world as an apprentice. It's like, no, it's an equivalent of. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And I've always had a bee in my body about the title apprenticeship levy. I was, was going to say, is there still okay. a stigma about apprenticeship? There is. There's right. a lot of stigma in it. And I think mm. it has to do with the, the title apprentice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess my question is, do you see that space actually as being one, a, one of our strongest tools that we can use really to upskill or to attract these diverse skills? And two, is part of the challenge the labeling? Is that just me being paranoid? It's a really interesting question. It's a really interesting question. I mean, if I if I come at it from a where my head immediately goes to is mm. I am a big advocate for diversity of thought. Mm. And um through lived experience, the more diverse brains you have in the room regardless of the shape size and skin they come in but when you've got truly diverse thinking those rooms are often quite uncomfortable I mean you know professionally uncomfortable but you get some amazing outputs you know we've all been I think in rooms where um group think reigns and it's it's you know you, you get fairly mediocre outputs and I'm quite a pragmatist as well so um I am a I like to I like to test stuff out. I like to get stuff done. So the idea of apprenticeships for me makes complete sense because that's how my brain works, I guess, really, you know. So I think there's an absolute need to do it. I think probably what happened, certainly for my generation, you know, the kind of, you know, the Labour government that came in in 97 had a really big push on getting everybody to university. And that became, that became the thing that, you know, I was the, first person in my family to go to university, uh, swiftly followed by my brother, which is fantastic. But, you know, that that became the kind of thing, wasn't it? You know, you, you, you go to university and that's the the sign that you've done all right. And so I think you're probably right, Mesh, if we're really honest, they're, they're, that's set, certainly in my generation's head, a degree of that's the marker in the sand because it was what was ingrained in us when we were coming out of school and so on. Um, however, I think when you, when you look at routes through, we've got like TechSiren, for example, when you look at... The people that I admire, many of whom now are in senior roles in organisations, many of those people started, if you like, through a route either that was called an apprenticeship or that would now be called an apprenticeship. And the skills that they have and the ability to kind of ground their skills in real practical um, experience is, you know, carries them through all sorts of really, it gives them resilience, you know, that maybe others like me don't necessarily have if we haven't done that job. So I think, is there a stigma? I, I don't know. I wouldn't want to generalise overly. There might be in some institutions, there might be in so, some organisations. Um, on a personal note, I feel like you want people from a broad range of backgrounds. You want some of the theory. You know, I work on projects with academics, you know, PhDs and postdocs and, and that level of theory and and also practical experience. But, you know, conceptual ideas is vital. But at the same time, it's no use if we haven't got people who understand how to implement and so on. So for me, you kind of need all of them, but I think it's a really fair challenge. And I think um, there's something about showing why bother again, right? So if you're going to come in through a technical apprenticeship type route into the sector, why would you do that? What are the benefits of doing that? And what where can that take you? And making sure that there are, that we smash the barriers, I suppose, as much as possible, and we spotlight the successes. So when we talk about, you know, when you asked me to introduce myself, I said, you know, 
I'm a child engineer and I'm a child developer. I didn't say I've got a degree in or because for me, I could have still become a chartered water and environment manager through a technical apprenticeship route. Ab- absolutely. And I know plenty of people. I don't know plenty of people, actually. I know some people that are. We've got work to do at Siren at getting more people through that route. It's a relatively new route. But what I could also tell you is I don't know that many female fellows. Got more of them. But we, a bit like the ICE, when I started as president, we had 9% of our fellows were female. Mm-hmm. 9%. Yeah. It's not representative of the sector. So we've got, we've got challenges. Apprenticeships is one of them. Fellowships is another one of them. You know, there are challenges throughout, I think, really. It's about spotlighting the successes where we can and trying when we see barriers to move them out of the way, I think, really. No, I can talk about this forever. Sorry, you've got me on my hobby horse. <laughs> you know, like, honestly, I was just nodding there because I was like, seeing... <laughs> It really is. We'll get a coffee afterwards, especially. <laughs> yeah, and, and and that goes for apprenticeships as well. You know, last last round of apprenticeships we had, we didn't have one female applicant as well, and 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 I think that's a bit disappointing mm-hmm. as well. And and again, why do you think that is, Carl? I, I know you're interviewing I, me, but what what do you think the logic yeah, is going on there? I I don't know. I, I don't know if it's it's just how the job descriptions are written, or or. I, I honestly, I honestly don't know. I can't, I can't understand it. Um, mm. But you know, our, our team is a is a fifty fifty balance where where I work. Um, you know, and kind of, we've we've got very good young female engineers as well. You know, and who who are capable and confident, and and I think that's you know that's absolutely brilliant. But I can't understand why what's stopping people from from coming in and, and trying it. And I don't know if it's because it's um, you know the apprenticeships we we deliver here they rotate between um, sort of structures civil engineer and highway engineer and flood risk management and I you know I feel like you know as you said primarily you're a geographer and I feel like what I do every day is a geography lesson and and almost like it we need to almost rebrand what we do is that um mm-hmm. and I think we might we might just get different ideas around the table as well um as I said I feel whether where that generation that's taking it from that grey engineering to that you know put the planet first in essence, um, mm. and and we we've got to make that transition safely and securely because I've I talked to the people you know who were who were handing this planet over to the future, and you you need to be responsible with it. I think part of it though is you see representation, and I remember very very simple example, Carl, is years when I was still in Northumbria Water, and I used to go into um, local schools. So we used to have um, a Middlesbrough College used to do like a STEM day. Um, and then in non Tyneside the local schools, we used to go in and support the schools. And um, they invited uh, they invited the manager from Northumberland Water to come in. And I showed up and I, I showed up all made up. And I was like, and I remember the girls were fascinated. They were like, oh, you're not what we expected. And just just by virtue of me showing up, yeah, that changed something. And I think that yeah. having a team that is diverse is great. But if people on the outside can't see yeah as much then that in itself could be a barrier Mm -hmm. so it's just sometimes just showing up and going i'm an engineer and this is what i do yeah you'd be amazed at Mm -hmm. how much of a a difference that makes to someone's setting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because there's someone there who's always been told that look it's mostly men in that job and i'm sure they could do it but they're just Mm -hmm. like do i really want to go into that space 
no, you go, yes, you can. Look where yeah, else is in that yeah. space. And, and, and as well, if, if you yeah. pair it with, with the construction industry, when mm. civil engineering's there, yeah. the construction industry historically has been a bit a bit stigmatized, a bit of a lot culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I started off on a building site and, you know, it, the world's a very different place now to what it was in the late 1990s. Um, but, you know, kind of was, there wasn't a, a single female on, on the sites yeah. then. And it's all the enablers, isn't it? I mean, you, the adage "you can't be what you can't see," I think is I think is really true. Yeah. And it's even things like making sure that you've got PPE that fits women. So now we do, but um, you know, you and I, you know, came into work about the same sort of time, Carl. And I never had female PPE. I just had smaller men's size of everything mm-hmm. that badly fitted me, and you know, was a bit was fine, but uh, it was. I mean, even corporate clothing wasn't always available. In, yeah. It was often men's corporate clothing sometimes. So um, it, it, that's an enabler. Making sure there's a toilet actually mm-hmm. yeah, the that's broom available on site. You know, that, there's that kind of, you know, like women menstruate. So actually, if you're going to be out on site all the time, then it's, you can't go have a quick wee behind a tree. That's not how it works, actually. So how do we how do we make sure in a very professional way without it being uncomfortable that we just put those enablers in place and it's not just about gender is it but also for me there's I've got a big thing about operational roles are probably some of the easiest roles to make part-time you know you think about any job that you can make part-time the hard ones are where there's shed loads of handover you know how do you how do you share a job or how do you do a part-time job when when it's all in your head but when something is a bit more operational and actually those tasks lists are a bit more you know visible well, those are the kind of roles that you could say we split standby, you know, we split shifts. Um, we, we could make those part-time roles. And I used to manage operational teams in a water company. And uh, and we got, I had women working for me, but not many. It was primarily men. And I wish now I'd had those thoughts and been stronger at the time and thought, why don't I advertise this as a job share? Mm-hmm. Because actually th- there might be some people that, that they'd be up for this, but not just women, but just people with caring responsibilities yeah. but that actually I'd love to do this at, you know, 24 hours a week or whatever that might be with the odd weekends or, so it's also about, I think, as you said, the language that we use, the skills that we ask for and us challenging ourselves as a sector to say, we, we are now pretty ingrained. You know, I've been in the sector 20 plus years. So there's custom and practice in my mind about the way jobs need to be done. And, I, and when we think about bring it back to blue and green and that's a really new area for me so I'm trying as best I can you know in the work that I'm doing to think about well what skills do we actually need to deliver the outputs we need and then how do we go and shape those roles and and maybe there's a role for us as you know professional institutions to say what do we want blue and green solutions professionals to be what do we need almost what map that chain out from concept through to delivery and maintenance and then afterwards, we can work out, well, where do they need to fit? What organisations do they fit in? Um, but actually, what what skills do we even need for some of those roles? And when I think about the water sector, you know, you might have seen 70-odd billions gone in, nearly 80 billion over the next five years for, um, for storm overflow yeah. reductions. And a big chunk of that is going to need to be blue and green solution. The company that I'm working for has said 50% of their surface water will be treated through blue and green routes. I mean... And that, and where are those people coming from yeah. you know there's a huge amount of work to do there yeah and, and that's a massive skills shortage as well because it's new it's innovation mm-hmm. and, and as well selling this as innovation is probably a good way to get people involved but you know what, what you've mm-hmm. what you mentioned there before about job share etc i think work-life balance is is massively important in this post-covid world you know and 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 
we've proven that any job can be done differently to how it's traditionally been done. And I think, you know, again, that's a massive point and a massive sell. And I think those companies or organizations that have, that have embraced this new work and culture and this work-life balance are really thriving at the minute and they're getting, they're getting mm. a very good stocks of employees moving over to them because mm. they, they're offering these benefits because, you know, we, we all want to be, you know, delivering better projects, but we all want to have a life outside of work as well. And that's really important. Yeah, I agree entirely. Well, I think we've uh, we've had a really great chat and thank you so much, Nikki. It's been brilliant sharing, talking STEM and diversity. I was just like, yeah, it's. A, I think it's a, it's it's clearly a topic very passionate to all three of our hearts. So I think it's been a really yeah good and valuable chat. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Total total pleasure to meet you both, and um, always happy to continue the conversation with yourselves and anyone that's listening as well. It's something that yeah, I'm really fired up about as well. Thanks for listening to the PGM podcast today. We hope you found it informative and enjoyable. If you did, please like and subscribe to the podcast. But also, please, if you find this useful to anyone else, pass it on and spread the word. To find out more about Project Groundwater Northumbria, please visit www.pgn.org.uk.